3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ayan, George, Anya. Um, Lauren is not here with us just yet. Mm. Um, we miss you, Lauren. We miss you, our little... Lawyer. She said she was running this morning. Was that? <laughs> She's got an update about that. Not running away from something. Uh, exercising. <laughs> exercising. I loved how she said allegedly. <laughs> the last time we exercised together, it didn't end very well for either of us. Oh no. Oh, yeah. So I wasn't being mean to her in the group chat. I, that that was a legitimate concern. Oh, what happened the last time you exercised? Um, we got a bit sick. Sick. <laughs> That's what you're going to say. That's all. Just have to imagine. So, any interesting events Um, last week? I went to an event in the North Fitzroy Library, which was a discussion between Dr. Janine Lane, who we interviewed last week, and Ellen Van Neven about the recently published anthology, Meet Me at the Intersection. And Ellen was one of the contributors to that book. And... Um, yeah, it was a really, really good discussion, and they talked about the book, but also about, um, you know, how um, we need to encourage authors from different intersections um, and how we can read their books more, and yeah, um, that was really good. And on Sunday, I read the book A Long Way From No Go, yes. and um, we're going to be interviewing the author later mm-hmm. during today's show, so that's really exciting. Awesome. What about you guys? You've been kind enough to learn it to me as well, so I can't <laughs> wait to get started on it too. Um, what what did I do? I did. I inter- actually I, I interviewed um, a girl named uh, well a young woman. <laughs> I don't know if we say girls anymore. Um, a young woman named Akut, and she's an early childhood educator. So I interviewed her about just about her job and just some challenges that she has and. Things that would, things that could make her job a lot better, because I know early educators are um, trying to get a wage increase, mm. so that's important. I actually went to a rally last week about it, organised by Big Steps. So all these, just the amount of work that women do, um, that early child, early child, sorry, early childhood educators do, and they're mainly women. There's actually figures that say 97% are women Mm -hmm. right and it makes sense that they would be paid least because women's work or work that's seen as like centrally um uh, it's they see as work yeah feminized work so they 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 don't see it being of value or Mm -hmm. requiring skills so they're like why i mean this is this pretty much comes this is like second skin for you Mm -hmm. like what do you mean yeah. Mm. So that was interesting. And mm. that episode will be up for Accent of Women. Cool. Look at me doing a little yeah. promo. I feel like <laughs> I feel like Channel Nine. 
Tune into the vlog. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's at 8.30. But other than that, nothing. Nothing. Stayed home, watched Netflix. As you did. <laughs> Great, yeah. And so should we quickly talk about some of the interviews we have? Yeah, today? let's do it. We've got, got a first. packed show today. Yes. Firstly, we've got the wonderful, amazing Mojo Juju. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a funny backstory to it. So I was listening to her new album, Native Tongue, highly recommended. Um, and one of the songs, um, it's called Thousand Years, made me bawl like a baby. And I just sat there thinking, you know what, I'm just going to email her and, yeah, and talk to her about this album. Just completely not expecting a reply. But here we are. Mm. The moral of the story. <laughs> if you want something, yeah. go for it. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so excited. <laughs> Who do we have next? So after that, I think we'll be yeah we'll be talking to um, Dr. Manns about the idea of accent bias and how it impacts racism, classism, and sexism. Mm. And then followed by Janara Goring Goring, who's this amazing. Um, Indigenous woman who is going to talk about her book A Long Way from No Go. Um, and finally, we've got... Ah, um, a really dear friend of mine, Hannah, and her close friend, Lucy, who are putting on a high femme queer cabaret at the yeah. Butterfly Club mm. in about a week. <laughs> yes. It sounds amazing. We're so going. We're where are yes, we going? obviously. Oh my yeah. God. I hope you got us, no, I hope you got us tickets. I'm just letting you know. I, yes, I have. <laughs> oh, I will have <laughs> very soon. Um, but is that, yes, so to get us in the mood for mm. Mojo Juju, should we start off with your favourite track of the album? All right, bring the tissues out. All right. Ready. So what's this one called again? It's called Thousand Years. What do you like about Thousand Years? Oh, we'll talk about it after. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> This album is just, yeah, it only came out, what, like a month ago? Yeah, and it's been playing non-stop in my house. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you get time to hear my favourite track as well. Yes. After this. Let's do it. All right, so this is 1,000 Years. Mm. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, and we just heard a track by Mojo Juju, which is called 1,000 Years, and we are just so excited because we'll be speaking with her very, very soon. Very soon. <laughs> <laughs> so we might play another song off her new album to get us in the mood for the interview. Yeah, what's your favourite? My favourite track is Don't Stop Me Now. Oh, yes, love it. Yeah, and I remember when so Mojo played at the Melbourne Museum like mm-hmm. a couple months ago with mm-hmm. Kate and... Um, uh, I can't remember the name of that last... Um, uh, Thelma Plum, mm. and it was just so amazing, and the whole like the whole gig was amazing. But then the very last song, Mojo played this track, mm. and it felt like the whole room was just quiet. Yeah, and it's a really hard venue to play in. Yeah, like, it's just so open and strange. But that just was just one of the most captivating things. Yeah, it was incredible. It's um, it's just, it's such a good song. Um, and it just, it conveys how much. Um, you know how many like how much um, how many struggles she had to get where she is right now, mm. and and how she's overcome all of that, and nothing else is going to stop her. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Oh, I feel emotional just thinking about it. I saw her in 2015 for the um, Footscray Community Arts Centre had a 
uh, Woman of the World. I was there. Mm. Were you there? Yes. Oh my god. Oh, <laughs> that day was amazing. Incredible. It was like outside of um, the. Footscray uh, Art Centre, yeah. and it was right near that pier thing, and yeah, it was like, like on the water, uh, on the waterfront. Oh. It was packed, mm. like jam packed, and she had this like guitar slung around her, and just yeah, kicking ass. <laughs> Such fan girls. <laughs> oh, all right, let's play this track. Okay. Then. So this is "Don't Stop Me Now" by Mojo Juju. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George and myself, Anya. That was Don't Stop Me Now by Mojo Juju. And we're going to be talking to Mojo Juju now. Um, since cutting her teeth and making her name for herself in the Australian touring circuit in the late 2000s, Mojo Juju has been many things to many people. Now, after a decade honing the art of storytelling, she's made the boldest move imaginable. She has decided to finally just be the story. Um, so we're going to be talking about her album Native Tongue and her upcoming national tour. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mojo. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Any time, actually. <laughs> We're just fangirling out here. Um, let's just jump right in. Talk me through the process of creating this album. The tone and content of the songs in this album, as compared to your previous ones, it's more raw and vulnerable and incredibly personal. And I just remember bawling like a baby after listening to Thousand Years. So I imagine that creating it must have been such an emotional experience. Um, so what's the creative journey been like for you personally? But also, what are you trying to do with this album? Um, oh, look, it's been a, it was a long journey. Mm. I spent a couple of years making this record and it was probably, it was really immersive, um, in that I really kind of, you know, I was telling real stories about myself and my family members and our experiences, um, and, I guess I kind of took myself and sat myself in the middle of the desert mm. <laughs> to kind of, um, I guess, recreate in a way a sense of isolation mm. that I felt as a younger person sort of growing up in, like, regional Australia in the 90s and just sort of not really fitting in. Mm. So I kind of, you know, used to get that sometimes, I think, when you was in your little Fitzroy kind of bubbles. And I, yeah, I just sort of, I took myself out to the desert and sat there with my brother and we wrote for two weeks. Mm. And I think we wrote probably about a third of the album there. And then other stuff was sort of written... Uh, back and forth between Dubbo and, and Melbourne and and whatnot. And I guess, yeah, what I was trying to achieve was, you know, I think it was a real, it was a very personal goal. Like, I didn't really anticipate or consider the response that I've had. Mm. I didn't think that that was going to be, you know, um, so strong. I I think I just 
it was for me it was more about just like oh, I need to do this for me so mm. um, I need to tell these family stories to one keep those oral traditions alive mm. but also you know I wanted to talk about my experience mm. in my own terms because I feel like you know it kept coming up in conversation mm. you know around identity like race and sexuality and all of that mm. and it's definitely touched um so many people in so many different ways and i think that's why it's it's blown up so much um and you've been on the australian music circuit for a while now and you identify as a proud queer woman of colour, um, and you've been very open about it. In your experience, how difficult or, or easy was it to occupy space in the scene, and has it become better or worse, or has it just stayed the same since you started? Look, like, to be real, I've never tried to hide who I am, mm-hmm. but I also never... Um, openly spoke about aspects of my identity through my music or in interviews. Like, I just, you know, I didn't want to politicise the conversation. Mm. And when you're, you know, people, other people politicise your identity and they have all my life, mm. um, whether they realise it or not, you know, then make it about, you know, your race or your sexuality. Mm. Like... Um, I I just was like really adamant that I didn't want to talk about that in music previously. Mm. I was like, I want it to be about the music. And I thought that to me was my way of kind of dealing with, I think, you know, the prejudices that exist like in the world, like in a broader sense, but also within the music industry. And it's, like, kind of funny because growing up, I always thought, oh, the music industry is, like, going to be this safe place for me to exist. You know, like, I always I knew I wanted to play music. That was as much a part of my identity as anything else. Mm. And I thought the music industry was going to be this safe place where I could do that without judgment of anything else. But I quickly realised that <laughs> that's not necessarily the case. Mm. And um, I don't know, I feel like, do I feel like it's changed? I feel like all that stuff used to be really insidious and kind of people were aware that maybe they shouldn't have those prejudices and they kind of Mm. concealed them well. And now I feel like all of that has, kind of boiled to the surface. Mm. The conversations are being had around, mm. you know, representation, diversity, and also, you know, this is, it is an industry where in Australia it's been very much dominated by, you know, white mm. male voices for a really long time. And, you know, it's, I guess it's, it is changing, but, I think as with anything anywhere, when you have, like, a huge shift, there's always going to be, um, you know, that polarised opinion and that kind of 
Mm. You know, the pendulum is going to swing just as hard the other way. Mm. And I suppose um, then the... Yeah. I, I suppose then the next question is how do we make it more... Um, yeah, inclusive and, and safer for artists like yourself? Jeez, uh, <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. um, if I necessarily, I necessarily have the answers to that mm-hmm. this morning. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, I haven't had a coffee yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's too early. I, I feel like... Um, you know, I think things is definitely, you know, there's definitely, there's this movement towards, like, kind of creating more diversity on lineups and, and whatnot. But I, I, and I've noticed that, and I think that's really positive. But I, what I, what I want to see is that kind of shift and click over from being, like, mm-hmm a token gesture into being something is so natural that there isn't a conversation about it. Mm. And so, um, you know, that's, that's just something that's just going to take time, I'm, I'm guessing. But th- there are more and more artists around who are sort of vocal, um and you know more more and more artists sort of demanding you know those changes that they want to see within mm. the industry and i think and I think it's being i do think it's being heard, but you know it's also it's like also really important to remember that that's not our job mm. my yeah. job is not to tell you how to do it my job is to make art mm. yeah. <laughs> my job is to make music mm. and you know, and I, and I think, you know, I think when there's artists like Kira Peru or Thelma Plum or Nairi mm. um, or Remy and Sampa mm. and, you know, like there's so many artists, people of colour who are absolutely 100% at the top of their their game as songwriters, as performers as artists in Australia, and they're all people of colour. Mm. It's like it seems very simple and very very obvious to me that they should be getting recognition and they should get should be getting... And I think it's, ha- it's starting to happen, but I just, like, you know, they've had to really, like, fight for that. And, I, mm. and you know, and I think there's a younger kind of generation of artists, like, that are coming up to in that, mm-hmm. you know, like following in their footsteps, who I, I think hopefully it's going to have, you know, it's just going to be that little bit easier for them. Mm. Yeah, we hope so too. <laughs> We're super excited to see, um, yeah, more and more upcoming artists like yourself in the scene. Um, tell us about your upcoming national tour. How can listeners find out more and where can they get tickets? You can find out all about that mm-hmm. and get tickets from mojojuju.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the dates and ticket links are up there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a pretty massive tour. <laughs> I think it's like 21 dates. Oh, my God. We're going to some... Um, well, we're doing all the 
big cities, but we're going to hit a lot of regional spots as well. Amazing. Hope you've got fam out there. Mm. Send them along. Um, Mm. Yeah, that was important for me because, you know, I grew up in the country, so I was like, I want to get back out there. In case there's kids out there Mm -hmm. like me, you know, growing up, who didn't get to see that very often. Great. Um, I've already got my ticket <laughs> um, to your show in Brunswick, so I guess I'll see you there. Um, that's all the time we have today, unfortunately, Mojo, but thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was Mojo Juju, um, and you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. <laughs> 3CR is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps. And more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. Do you live within 5 kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project Scheme. And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible. Darabin Council is conducting a review of everything it does to support people over 65, and we want your input. Whether you're an older Darabin resident, approaching retirement, or have ageing parents or loved ones, this review is relevant to you. We need all perspectives on how we can make Darabin an age-friendly city. For more information, visit our website on www darabin.vic.gov.au or call Darabin Council on 8470 8470 to speak in your language. The City of Darabin is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George and myself, Anya. 
So next up, I have a song for you. It's called Mira. It's by this um, Indian-American artist called Raja Kumari. That's a professional name. Her non-professional name, I suppose, is um, Sweta Rao. And, yeah, she does really cool songs um, fusing classical Carnatic music with hip-hop and rap. And so, yeah, enjoy.
2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net, a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. So we have Dr Howard Manns on the line, who is a lecturer in linguistics at Monash University. Dr Manns is joining us to discuss this idea of accent bias. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. <laughs> so tell us, what, what is accent bias? Uh, accent bias is judging somebody based on the way they speak and most commonly judging somebody negatively based on the way they speak. And accent bias predominantly relates to power. Uh, people, uh, those, those accents that are most standard, you know, standard English ways of speaking are predominantly associated with the middle class or the upper classes. And uh, many people who use these more standard accents uh, judge those who use non-standard accents uh, ju- negatively. Mm. And so how do you measure this type of bias in your research? Uh, in research, the way that you can measure it is you can get people to listen to accents and they measure these accents or judge these accents based on something called a Likert scale where it goes, um, you'll ask somebody, okay, is this accent pleasant or unpleasant on a scale to one to seven? Is this person who has this accent, um, you know, going to be very smart at, at um, giving presentations or putting together uh, a report on a scale of one to seven? And we're able to quantify these accents this way. Right. So that seems, because I was wondering, is this kind of like an unconscious bias that you're measuring? But then if you're actually asking people if they like a certain way of speaking, then that's more overt or explicit, you know, the response that they have. It is, but um, but you're right, absolutely, that a lot of these biases are actually unconscious, and it takes it takes sitting somebody down and somebody sitting down as an individual and getting them to reflect on these accents as an individual to uncover these kinds of biases, um, because. Frequently, if you grow up speaking a standard variety of English, you might hear these other kinds of ways of speaking, and you might think that they don't sound so good. But um, this this accentism, this this accentism in comparison to the you know these more obvious sexism and racism and classisms, accentism is this one area of ism where we're not always aware of it, but also it's this area of ism where. Uh, it, you can you can judge somebody for their accent in a way that you can't judge somebody for their race or their class or uh, their gender. Mm. And has your research shown so far that it is quite prevalent as a form of discrimination or bias? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but the interesting thing with accents is actually, you know, you would think that we judge accents either as good or bad, but it's actually a lot more complex than that. And it's complex in the way that um, 
people who have these standard accents or these these upper class accents are generally seen to be um, uh, more intelligent and more competent. They get they get judged in these ways. But in fact, people who have non-standard accents and and these accents that might be scare quotes considered lower class or or ethnic are actually considered to be more friendly and more trustworthy. Right, that's an interesting finding. Is that research within Australia that's been conducted? Um, there is research. I have actually a couple of PhD students working on accents here in Australia. One of them is Lee Murray. She's looking at Australian English accents. And yeah, that's one of the things that... Uh, that Lee is finding. Lee's research actually focuses on the difference between those accents that are associated with urban areas versus those accents that are associated with rural areas. And, you know, those accents that are associated with these urban areas are frequently those accents. You know, the, the general to cultivated accents are seen as being more intelligent and more competent, but those rural accents are viewed as those people who might be considered, you know, more typically Australian um, and also more friendly. Uh, another research project or another PhD student that I have is looking at Asian accents, Asian Australian accents here in Melbourne. And what he's been finding is, you know, you can sometimes generalize this Asian Australian accent as being a single thing. But what he's finding actually is that there is no single Asian Australian accent. What ends up happening when Asian Australians speak with one another is that they shift between these different accents. So he, he's been investigating that time-honored Melbourne tradition of these dinner parties. And he's finding that these um, a Malaysian uh, English speakers, or Malaysian Australian English speakers, are actually when they talk about wine or sophisticated topics, are shifting toward cultivated Australian accents. When they're just talking more generally, they're using this general Asian Australian accent. But whenever somebody um, says something about Malaysian identity, in particular, if uh, Anglo Australian says something about Malaysian identity, the Malaysians at the table will actually go into these um, traditionally like Malaysian accents. Um, and you begin to use Malaysian grammar to actually defend themselves. Right, and and so how does this work in other contexts like employment? Um, <clears throat> a lot of the work that's being done here in Australia is actually based on these other contexts. Uh, some of the more famous uh, studies that have been done on accents have been done in the U.S., and in particular, there's a very famous uh, study that was done on Disney characters, and <laughs> the accent does done on Disney characters, because if you go back before the 1990s or so, um, the, the minority accents, those accents, those non-standard accents like African-American vernacular English and Latinos, they were predominantly associated with animal characters rather than human characters. You can always find that, um, you know, these accents are associated with, you know, like the crab in The Little Mermaid and those kinds of characters. And those characters uh, kind of in line with what I was talking about before, being likable and, and pleasant, uh, were also characterized, though, as just being kind of aimless and just, just concerned with um, pleasuring themselves and having a good time and never moving necessarily the storyline forward. Um, whereas the standard, uh, standard English accents were, you know, these white accents were associated with the human characters and the heroes. Um, the villains, uh, you might notice, typically actually have British accents and French accents. Uh, Jeremy Irons, in particular, of course, is associated with a lot of these villainous mm, Disney characters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, so this comes back to the media. That's interesting that there's a connection there. And what, what might be the potential impacts of this research for people who experience accent bias? Well, I think in the very beginning, I would hope, um, you know, I would hope that we can use this kind of research to make people more aware that this actually exists. We can use this kind of work to show people that um, that it's not cool uh, in the sense that accent, as I said, accents are, seem to be this one area of society where people are entirely comfortable uh, bashing other people, you know, and people who are... Um, you know, who are marginalized in society, and it's not really. It's just another, as with the other isms, you know, sexism, racism, and classism, it's another ism, full stop. And you can't make fun of somebody for their accent. You can't put somebody down for their accent and not think that that ties into the larger picture. So, mm. uh, so I think the first thing is that. The second thing is I hope that when we look at the research such as like the Malaysian Australian English research and we see that actually we're not talking about people speaking a single or using a single accent but in fact people are switching between a range of accents I hope people understand that accent is much more complex than we might expect yeah yeah that's interesting and I think that's a really important point about that the fact that it's very um that we need to be aware of it and if we're not aware of it you know it's 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 um it's going to have unintended outcomes unlike with racism sexism we're talking about these issues a lot more in 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 the public discourse so it is it does seem like a very important area of research to be doing so thank you very much for your time this morning howard my pleasure cheers bye bye Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Um, welcome back. If you're listening in, you're tuned to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It is, um, what is the time? Is that the right time? It's 7.54. So it's 7.54. We don't know what the weather is. All we know is that it's really warm inside this room. So sucks to be you. Um, wow. This is how we treat our audiences, huh? So I just wanted to quickly say a few things before Anya um, chats to her next interview. That was interesting. I was hoping he would really get into the way accent bias impacts, like, life opportunities, right? Um, What does it mean when you've got the skills and you've got the qualifications, but because of your accent, you're denied and accents being associated? When he said the stuff about um, upper-class, like, accents... It's not just upper class, it's, it's white accents. Like, I wish he had called it what it was. And when he was talking about Australia, uh, rural accents being trusted, rural accents are very much, they've become nationalised. Like, people see um, the rural areas as, like, what Australia is, right? So Australia has moved on, obviously. And now I associate the Australian accent with, like, Melbourne accent, if that makes sense, right? Um, 
and a lot of people actually do that now. That's how they've they've begun associating it. Um, but I wanted to also touch on the Disney stuff. Apparently, this is just stuff that I've read in the past, where Disney characters actually like took the piss out of African American um, like accents, right? So there's one character I don't know if it's if it's the one about the elephant but there's birds and the birds are like singing they've got sort of like a they they sound like really lazy and they're very I forgot the name of the um cartoon I was talking about but what I've read is that he some of the characters were sort of almost like blackface right so the whole Disney accent, I wish he had talked about it from a racial lens because that's what it was. And the whole stuff about ethnic accents being more trusting, it reminded me of the way you see um, ethnic people as sort of like little children of of that whole servile personalities, right? Sort of like, oh, you know, you can trust them. Why can you trust them? Because, you know, they're, they're our domestics. Like, that's that's what I felt like. Um, anyways, that, that's what I was thinking. Mm. It was just, yeah, I was just like, oh. So when, so when you say, oh, you know, these accents are consi- considered to be friendly, it's like, well, where does that come from? Like, what are the underlying, like, yes. racist or other kinds of, you know, ideas that underpin that? It's not so much, oh, this is a really positive thing for something mm. to be, to understand. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's not just something, oh, that's, it's not something that's not nice. It's something that prevents us from, you know, yeah, from getting jobs and I- I- even renting and, yeah. So it really has, like, real real effects. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. It's Jim Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George and myself, Anya. Next up, we have Janara Goring-Goring, who's the author of the book A Long Way From No Go, which is her memoir. Um, Janara is a very, very impressive woman. She's a waka waka wooly wooly traditional owner from central Queensland who has lived and worked in Canberra, Tasmania, Northern Territory, Victoria, South Australia, WA and New South Wales, basically everywhere, and overseas in a 40-year career. She's a mother and grandmother and has a large extended family in Queensland and the Northern Territory. She's, she's an academic lecturer and researcher at five Australian universities, has extensive public service background in the federal government and the New South Wales and Queensland state government public services. Um, Janara carries the traditions of her clan through medicine practice, being a song woman and teaching Aboriginal law and spirituality to people throughout the world. Um, and just 
Very interestingly, in 2006, she was suspended and later resigned from her position in the Office of Indigenous Policy Coordination in the Prime Minister's Department after she turned whistleblower and helped expose the Howard government's fraudulent claims leading up to the Northern Territory emergency response into Northern Territory Aboriginal communities. We're so excited to have her um, talk to us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Janara. Well, thank you very much. The pleasure is mine. <laughs> Let's start by talking about um, your memoir, about why you made the decision to document your incredible life story. Was there a particular incident that made you think that it was time? Well, no, I didn't really. It came about kind of, um, well, it started as a journal when I was uh, putting the first priest in jail for sexually abusing me as a child. That happened in 1995, and as the case was going on, I was just writing about what I felt and what I thought and how things were, Mm. and that gradually morphed into what I called a novel based on fact because I thought, oh, I'll make this a proper story. Mm. And uh, so that went on until about 2001, and then when I finished it, I put it on the shelf and I shared it with a couple of girlfriends who said they'd really like it because I'd never written... Uh, such a long thing before. I'd written poetry, but nothing else. Mm. And um, the shelf, they said they really liked it. And I thought, oh, maybe this is worth reading. So with a bit of encouragement from a friend, I entered it into the David Unikin Award and it became the basis for this memoir. It mm. was a book I called The um, the Publisher, founded by the Unikin Award. And she called me up and, and said, is any of this true or how much of this is true? And I said, most of it. And she said, we'd like this to make uh, to make this book an autobiography. And I said, it, it's going to be really hard for me to write. I think um, we should have a co-writer, mm. co-author. And we, we went and found someone in Julie Sago. Mm. So that's how it out. So it started in 95 and here we are in 2018. It's finally a book. Mm. And talk me through that collaboration process with Julie. How did you find the journey of working with someone else to tell your story as authentically as possible? Well, I thought it was really important that I had a good writer Mm. and someone who could uh, work with me, someone that could understand me, someone that could know how to navigate uh, the story because parts of the story, the hardest part of the story is about the abuse, obviously, but and also the whistleblowing, the mm. late line stuff. I always wanted to write about that. I just found it very emotional and mm. very hard to do myself. So uh, Julie was found by Cathy Lewis, who's the publisher at Wild Bingo Press. Julie had uh, worked on a book with them before, and I read the book. She put it to me. I read the book. And I thought, mm, she has a really good way of writing. She is able to write with an authentic voice. Mm. I never uh, really doing it uh, entirely myself because of the reasons I've just given you. Um, so we collaborated over a three-year period, mm. um, talking face-to-face, meeting, taping it, and then she went through things. We wrote it together and then I let her write the really hard bits because I found them just too difficult. Yeah. So the collaboration was really a great exercise. I had to trust because mm-hmm. I'd already made the decision I would work with someone else. So mm-hmm. I made that decision to trust her. Uh, she, was a, she is an aged columnist in Melbourne and she's a lawyer mm-hmm. and she's a very uh, clever journalist and I liked her as soon as I met her. 
So it was an easy collaboration, mm. and she is a great writer, and she did great justice to it. In the in the parts where my voice needed to be heard, that was really hard. Mm. She did that very well, and I'm really proud of the work we did together, but I'm particularly proud of her writing. I think she's a brilliant writer and excellent. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have to agree. Um, the memoir's tone in general was, was quite conversational. A friend said that it was like sitting down with a cup of tea and listening to a mate tell you a story. And yeah, it was, it was such an incredible story and it was so, you know, full on, but, but also, you know, g- easy to read, I suppose. Um, given the the kind of content we're dealing with. Now, I just want to talk about the the whistleblowing incident. Um, The fallout from it personally for you has been incredibly stressful, the legal process, the financial burden, etc. And um, a friend said that, you know, she felt a really sharp pang when she read the line, nobody came to my 49th birthday, and that it made her question how to deal with people who turned their back on you for something you were innocent in. Given that now you've come out the other side, would you do it again? Oh, for sure. Mm. For sure. <laughs> the, only, um, the thing about it was that, uh, uh, you know, the word innocent is interesting. People would say that I was innocent. Some people have said, it, you know, it was, it's your guard of honour. You, you did a great thing. I just did what I felt was right at the time. Um, in, in Indigenous affairs, particularly as a public servant who has to give frank and fearless advice, the further up you go in your career, in the hierarchy, the higher you get up, uh, Mm. the more uh, the chance of you having to compromise your values, because uh, if you're working for a government that you cannot agree with in some things, you still have to give frank and fearless advice. You still have to be detached from what they're doing, because they're the government, not you. Mm. They were voted by the people democratically, you weren't voted in. It's your job. You're being paid to give advice. You're being paid to write policy. You're being paid to answer their questions to the public. And that's your job. So I did that for a long time. Mm. Um, You know, even in the days of Indigenous Affairs, political policy, marching down at Parliament House, old Parliament House, I was still a public servant over in my office in Woden. And I could do those two things together. Um, But that was because I was further down the line. As I got higher in my job and then had to really, felt that I had to really get that frank and fearless advice, I'd worked in Prime Minister and Cabinet under Howard. So I I felt, uh, and I was trained and schooled by my bosses Mm -hmm. to uh, do that and do it right, but also to mind my moral ability, you know, and keep that my value system. Mm -hmm. And I had grown up older and wiser. So I decided that, you know, I, I had a thought actually that at some point in my career maybe I would have to compromise my values or maybe I would have to stand up for them. Mm. And it was in that moment that that decision was made, but it came about without... I had no control over what happened. Mm. It was very... It was really controlled by other people. Mm. And in the end, I had to just make a decision because it was getting... I couldn't control it. Mm. And I knew that I would end up having dreadful things done to me by people in the government, especially my boss, who was a public servant, Yeah, yeah. Uh, in league with the minister mm. and the government. So mm. I made that decision and I was happy to live with it. Mm. But at the time that my birthday came about was just after it, uh, sorry, just around the same time. Actually, it was a year later, sorry. Mm. It was a year later, but this went on for a couple of years. And 
it's true that only only my lawyer, his wife, and an anthropologist person from ANU who was a friend of somebody I knew there came, mm. and my daughter and her friends, mm. and that was it. And so I invited a lot of people, my colleagues, mm. and nobody came. And mm. I was sad about it. It was really hard. And then I realised the consequences of what had occurred because my friends all worked in the public service at the mm. time. I, I had a few academic friends at ANU um, and other places, but uh, it really hit me then and I knew that mm. my life had completely changed and that I was going to have to be doing something else. Mm. But I would go back on what I did. No, never, because it was wrong. Yeah. Um, they were they were uh, hurting a bunch of people who had no power mm. and that's all the Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. Yep. And I couldn't sit there and just let that happen. I couldn't have lived with myself if I'd let that happen. Mm. So I would do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in the book, you talk a lot about the importance of self-determination for First Nations people. You describe how you've worked with Aboriginal communities to find solutions together and how this has produced actual results. I'm I'm thinking about the how the retention rates of Aboriginal university students soared after you went in and designed a project that included elders and community, you know, had more community involvement from 1% to 93%, which really just, just blew my mind. Um, so I guess w- what, in your opinion, are the next steps in achieving this sort of self-determination? Because obviously, yeah, it's it's done amazing things. Well, we're never going to get... We can self-determine what goes on in our lives on a moment-to-moment basis, just daily, but within our own homes, our own families, mm. and to some extent in our communities, because self-determination is about what you do and what you choose to do. But then when it becomes um, at the level of politics and political decisions and policy decisions, that's when it stops being real self-determination. Mm. Now, self-determination is enshrined in the, in the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. It took 25 years for that uh, piece of uh, legislation to occur because of the resistance of the Australian government, the Canadian government and some other governments like the United States towards self-determination, precisely because if you enshrine self-determination, and I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really talk in that regard, but as an Aboriginal person who understands it and what it means on the ground, if you enshrine self-determination in a piece of international legislation, then the member states have to consider the ratification of that. Mm. And in Australia, that would mean a colonial government, which is still a colonial government because they've not recognised our sovereignty, they've taken our land, in fact, stolen it, Mm. not given in a sense, not come to the table uh, as equal nations uh, regarding each other across the table in order to settle a matter around sovereignty. So until that occurs, real self-determination at that political policy design service delivery process can only happen if people are willing to do it on the ground. And often people who work in the government and people in the government who have that justice about them will do programs and will incorporate policies and service delivery on the ground that is self-determining. So there are individuals and people who can do that and Aboriginal people can do it. But the reality is we do need to do it together. And my view has always been, since I first came to Canberra and my first march 
my first learning from, you know, people like Charlie Perkins and Michael Mansell and Heather Skullthorpe and others, other Aboriginal men and women a lot older than wiser than me at the time, I learned about our sovereignty not being recognised. Mm. And the, the, I guess the moral value of that is that sovereignty and self-determination at a real level do go hand in hand. Mm. They, so I said go hand in hand in a moment to moment basis between individuals or small groups. Mm. But at a governmental level, it has to be the recognition of sovereignty. Yeah. And when you've got a colonial government that's taken the land and then has built a country over a long period of time for, mm. uh, through which they earn a lot of wealth, mm. it's really difficult mm. to give up to even recognise the sovereignty of First Nations people. Mm. It's got very hard. Will it ever happen? I have no idea. I wish it could, because for me, I don't see it as a big difficult thing, mm. but I know it's very difficult for lawyers and governments to make the moral decision, mm. to recognise yeah. and to allow our self-determination. Yeah. And just the last point, mm. whenever we've had self-determination, like the NAC, the National Aboriginal Conference, the Aboriginal Development Commission, the forerunners of ASIC and then the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, mm. the government, the white government and the white minister has taken away that self-determination. Mm. So that's what I mean about us having the rights of sovereignty because then no-one can take away the decisions are then made mm. either together with, with the colonial government or we make them on our own and they are accepted mm. by the, the government. Yeah. If you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, we are going to have to wrap up soon, but I just have one final question, Janara. Um, in the recent Brisbane Writers' Festival, which you participated in, a common theme across a lot of the panels was that there's no point in reconciliation exercises until truth-telling is added to it. And truth-telling has been going on for decades, and you know, even now in your book. And in your years of experience, do you think that people are getting better at listening when the truth is being told to them and they're getting better at taking action once they've heard the truth? Or do you think there's still a long way to go? Well, it seems there's a long way to go because people still feel they have to talk about truth-telling. Mm. Uh, so I think there's a lot of Aboriginal people in the country who feel that their truth has not been heard and it's not been told. So I think it's really important that that be allowed the one brilliant thing about the decade of reconciliation, and I'm not a real believer in the whole reconciliation thing as a way it's happened as a policy, but during that decade when Keating and Hawke put the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation into practice, mm -hmm. that was the first time real truth-telling got legislated and then communities and people started doing it. And I saw an enormous change in that 10 years, which is why we, did, we could do what we did at the university level, because... Uh, there was a willingness and it was legislated. There was a big organisation all around it. There was a campaign around it, a communication and marketing campaign. Uh, people were given the opportunity in their own towns, in their own places, to create reconciliation circles and talking. And so there was more respect for Aboriginal people and there was a recognition that dreadful things had been done. So I think until the whole historical truth is told... Mm. And it was denied for so long. You have to remember, we didn't start writing books and things in the true history until about the 1970s. So until that whole truth is told, 
people are not going to feel that they've been able to tell the whole truth. Mm. Uh, whether it gets legislated or not doesn't matter. People are just going to keep doing it. Mm. But when it is legislated, like the council, it moves it along much quicker. Look at the bridge walks that happened at the end of that decade. Mm. So, yes, I think, I think if uh, we as a government and as a people agreed to do it together so Aboriginal voices could be heard, we're only just hearing about all the massacres. And I had students at university who in their first, you know, meeting in their first semester in Indigenous studies would start crying. Young women would start crying, young men, and say, why weren't we told about the stolen generation at school? Mm. So something's got to happen in the curriculum. And we've been trying to get that to happen for 30-odd 30, 30 years. Mm. And government of particularly the Conservative persuasion have said, no, they're not going to do that. And so it's not mandatory to have Indigenous studies, whether it should or not is not for me. I'm not a curriculum education expert in that regard. But I think it's important that we teach it in primary school. We teach the proper history in high school so that when they come to university, we don't have to start them right from the beginning and tell them the whole history of 230 years mm. in six subjects across two years. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. That was such a, an illuminating conversation and I'd like to keep going, but unfortunately that's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us, Janara. I really appreciate your time and your listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Join us for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. Entries free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George and myself, Anya. We just listened to Janara Gorengoreng, author of A Long Way From No Go, which is now available in most of the bookstores. Um, that conversation was um, a, a bit heavy, and if that brought up some things um, for you, please call Reclaim Support Services on 1-800-052-674 or Lifeline on 131114. I just need one more chance. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, and that track we just heard is by Ivy Soul, and it's called Dream Girl. So, we have the pleasure of being joined in the studio by Hannah Monson. Hi. Hello. <laughs> so, a little bit about Hannah. Hannah is a trained actor at the Ballarat, the Ballarat Arts Academy. Hannah has a theatre background, does TV, and uh, one of the most note noteworthy examples is your involvement in the Netflix series Glitch, which mm -hmm. is now in its third season. Yeah. Very cool. And so Lucy, who probably won't make it, unfortunately, no, but that is the other person you're working with, is yeah. a choreographer. Yeah. 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 She's an actor as well. Yeah, yeah. We went to uni together. Oh, brilliant. 
And so you both have a high femme queer cabaret. We do, yeah. Sounds incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get stuck into talking about it, but I just first want to hear a little bit, little bit about your personal journey with acting and what motivated you to write a cabaret. Um, well, writing a cabaret, I suppose, like I am an actor, I am a performer. It's not something that I've done before, actually, but I'm queer. I like going to clubs and seeing <laughs> the performances that happen. Yeah. I think it's like, it's it's a historically integral part of kind of queer culture and expression and that kind of thing. And I guess I identified with it and thought, I'm a performer. I want to I wanna try this. I want to feel what this voice feels like when I put it on. What do I do with it? Yes, that's so cool. And so I don't actually know that much about the, I don't want to throw, throw you in the deep end. But with cabaret, like, what is the kind of, you know, the queer background to it or the history? Mm. I don't, I, oh, I'm, I want to be careful about this because I don't know for sure as well. I yeah. just know that it does have a long history yes. and like most things, we queer it up a bit. So yep. we, we take the <laughs> conventions of it and, we, um, and we, we use it in our own re-established way. Yes, yeah, that's cool. And so can you tell us about the cabaret? Yes, I can. Um, so, yeah, as you said, it's queer, it's high femme. Um, I guess we're using the cabaret umbrella, which is loose um, in all kind of cabarets. We're, we're using the conventions of cabaret basically to um, tell a story and to turn cabaret on its head in a little way. So often the conventions of, like, singing and direct address to the audience and interaction and that kind of thing, we're kind of heightening it, like the queer femme identity itself, so that we can... Um, there's, there's a subliminal message going on underneath the text at every point. The cabaret element is quite continuous, it's quite heightened, mm-hmm. and it allows us to kind of mess around with it. Yeah, cool. And so just for any um, listeners out there who aren't familiar with the idea of high femme, mm-hmm. could you give us a bit of background? <laughs> yeah, I can. So high femme is a queer term for an identity that takes the conventions of what is feminine, often what is imposed upon a feminine person that um, tells the world this is a feminine person. And we take those conventions and we own them. It's a very conscious choice to own, reclaim and feel powerful in what is feminine. It's not bound to any gender. Mm. That's really cool. Mm. Do you identify as high femme? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's an element of it that is in me, can be inherent, it can be quite performative at times. doesn't mean that I'm on all the time. But yeah, I yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so how important is um, performance and acting as an expression of identity and of sexuality? And is it something that's personally quite important for you as an actor? Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so. It's what I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly important. I mean, performance is storytelling. It's We look at what's going on around us and we tell stories that we think are important to audiences and ourselves. It's it's that's that's what it's there for. That's what it's always been there for. It's incredibly important, especially for sexuality, because it's something that's so often it has a history of shame. Mm. And so giving a big 
loud voice to that and telling those stories is really important mm. in spite of that shame. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, especially with, I guess, a femme identity, even in queer spaces, it, you know, maybe doesn't... There's certain ideas around it or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, you know, there's issues in our own community around femme identity as well. I mean, you know, um, I love my community, but each community has its thing mm. going on yeah. around it. It's, it's complex. It's, yeah, it's really mm. complex. I don't know how much I want to... Yeah, can I, <laughs> just, can I just add a, add a little tiny bit? Um, certain, like, um, do we still use the word ethnic? But, but, but certain communities of colour, um, they have, like, within their culture, being very feminine, adoring yourself. It mm. comes so natural, mm. something that wasn't interrupted by colonisation. Mm. So the idea that um, high femme, it's like, well, being, because being femme is something that's so looked down on. Anything, yeah. it, well, anything that's feminine is looked down on, but... Um, it's seen as sort of playing up to the patriarchy, but it doesn't consider all the other communities who've, who've, who've you know, who've embraced them, yes. been doing it yeah. before. It was even, uh, yeah, an issue. Sorry, I thought I would... No, I don't apologise. I think that's yeah. really interesting and a really kind of um, interesting point to raise when looking at us having problems of femme invisibility and things in the queer community. How much has that got to do with mm. colonialism inherently yeah. in... Western culture. Yeah, and then taking ownership of these identities. Yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah. And so how can people come and see the event? Oh, easy. You can rock up. You can book <laughs> tickets. Yeah. Uh, it's at the Butterfly Club. Yeah. So, yeah, just get online, go to the Butterfly Club, book some tickets. You can also book tickets through the Fringe Hub. Mm. You can find out more about it on Facebook. If you just type in Lashes, you'll find an event and a page or just go on the Butterfly Club site and they'll have us there as well. Sick, awesome. And we've also put the event info on our Tuesday Breakfast Facebook page as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Hannah. Thank you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.